0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll continue to move right along in this letter, looking at Galatians chapter 3 and verses 3 to 6. Galatians chapter 3 and verses 3 to 6. Galatians chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. Please then hear with me the reading of God's word. Are you so foolish? And continuing into this week, we are reading Paul's impassioned response to the saints in the churches of Galatia who have began to desert the apostle by turning their back on the gospel and now following after a false gospel. And so, as we've seen last week, Paul reminded them of the powerful manner in which they saw Christ crucified with eyes of faith, when, pa, when Paul preached the word to them. And it was at that time that they received Christ and all of the benefits thereof. And it was at that time that they received the, the Spirit as well. And as he speaks to them through this letter, we said that, that Paul is speaking to them as a father does his children. When we look last we get a few places where Paul calls himself a father right, to saints. Right, he sees those who he has tirelessly labored over as his children and he their father. And so as a father, here as he writes this letter, he is chiding them. Right, he is, he is chiding them. He calls them foolish Galatians. Because there's nothing more foolish we could do than to reject all that the cross offers to sinners. And in doing so, what are the, the Galatians showing to Paul? That they're showing that the, the flesh is weak. Right? They're showing the weakness of their flesh. This is why also he calls them Galatians. He doesn't call them brothers. Because they're allowing this, this fleshly doctrine to lay hold to the indwelling sin that remained in them. And in doing so, they weren't acting according to the Spirit like brothers, but rather they were acting carnally. Right? They were acting according to the flesh. And any sort of works-based merit theology is fleshly, isn't it? right it's carnal any doctrine that would seek to detract from the glory of God and place it upon man is carnal doctrine it's sinful doctrine it's it's fleshly doctrine, and who is behind that doctrine? well, as we've seen last week again, it was the devil ultimately right? who is who is behind this doctrine he is orchestrating these things now he does so with the uh, assistance of the world as they as they work with him, and he through the word then The world produces all sorts of deceitful schemes, right? Meant to to lay hold to the hearts of sinners so that he might cause you to question God and to second guess God's word. In fact, what I want us to see is that what's going on here with the Judaizers and the churches of Galatia is a mere image to what took place in the Garden of Eden with the serpent and our first parents. Really, the same method right, the same method being used why well, because the the same devil's behind them both, if you think about it in the garden of Eden, right God tells our first parents that you can eat of any tree in the garden except one the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, right, and so they were told by direct revelation from God right what what his will was. well, the same is true for the Galatians, isn't that right now. It was spoken through the apostle Paul, but they still knew the will of God, right? Repent and believe in the gospel. They were taught the true doctrine of justification. They knew all those things. Right? So both had the revelation of God. But in both instances, what happened? After given that revelation, the devil swoops in behind, doesn't he? And he says, did, did God really say? Did God really say? Right? A serpent, he did that to Eve. With the Galatians, he does this with the Judaizers. Right? Did God really say? Now what's interesting was is actually Eve's response. Because when the devil says, Did God really say? Eve essentially says yes. Because right after he asked that, she repeats verbatim what God said. He says, Did God really say? She says, Well, God said that we cannot eat of that we can eat of every tree in the garden except one, or we will surely die. Right? She knew the revelation. She knew what God said. And yet, what does Satan say to her? Well, you you surely won't die. You see, the, the devil knows the character of God. He knows God can't lie. He knows that God will follow through on His threat to sinners. But in order to accomplish Satan's purposes, what he wants everyone to think is that you can go beyond God's Word. You can not heed His instruction. You can take to yourself these doctrines that He tells us not to or do these things that He says He commands us not to do because it won't result in death. That's what that's what Satan wants us all to believe. But how does he get you to cross that line even when you know what the Word of God says? Well, he does it through the corruption of the flesh. Right Through the corruption of the flesh. This is what he did with Eve. This is what he does here with the Judaizers. Through the corruption of the flesh, he gets you to drop your guard by suggesting to us that something good, that something pleasurable, that something you can't live without, that something you must have for your benefit awaits us, and he convinces you that you must have it. And not only that you must have it, many times he convinces you that God wants you to have it as well. Take, for example, divorce. Right, we see this with divorce. Today, you might have people who grew up in the church, who are being taught, right, there's only two reasons for divorce that scripture gives. Right, adultery and abandonment. And they grew up believing that. And they get married believing that. And then all of a sudden, they become unhappy in their marriage. And so what do they start to do? They start to convince themselves that it's okay to leave this marriage because I'm not happy. Even though they know what the Word of God says. And what does the devil do? He starts to surround you with people who affirm that very thing. Yes, God wants you to be happy. He wants you to leave this marriage. He doesn't want you to be be stuck in this marriage. That's the same thing that the devil did to Eve. That's the same thing that the Judaizers are now doing uh, to uh to the saints in Galatia. Right? They know the word of God. Right? But what he's doing is he's, he's, he's getting them to cross that line by presenting to them something that appears good to them. And he makes them think that even God wants them to do it. Right? Oftentimes, even the thing that, that the devil presents to us is, is something that appears very spiritual, isn't it? Think about what the devil said to Eve. When he says that you surely will not die, he says, that you will be made like God. Right? You will have your eyes open, knowing good from evil. Well, who doesn't want to be more like God? right? He presented to them something that seemed like a spiritual good. And that's the same thing that's happening here with the, with the Judaizers. Right? The Judaizers, Judaizers aren't saying forsake Christ. They're just saying, look at all that Moses has to offer that perhaps Christ can't fulfill for you. But Moses can, so just add him in addition to Christ. They were made to believe by the Judaizers that to add Moses to Christ would be a spiritual benefit. But the devil all along knows that to add Moses to Christ is to forsake Christ altogether. But that's what he wants them to do. right? That's what he wants them to do. And, and how does he make them believe that, that Moses is good? Well, because now if they accept Moses, if they accept the sign, the sign of circumcision, what's going to happen? Well now the Judaizers are going to accept they're going to be able to eat with Jewish people. Right? They're going to have the, the full benefits of membership into the covenant they believe. Right? Because they've been taught that something is lacking in their relationship right now with God, that the Mosaic law is going to fill up. And so it's as if they the Judaizers are saying, did, did God really say? Right? Did God really say that all the promises are yes and amen in Christ? Right? The Judaizers. Uh, doing the work of the devil, asking them, did God really say that Jesus is the end of the law for all who believe? Right? They're suggesting to them, did did God really say that all things now are clean? Did God really say that that He sent Christ into the world to break down the dividing wall, to to abolish those ceremonies and those ordinances and make for Himself one new people? That's what they're trying to get the, the saints to question, right? The very Word of God. Now, the Judaizers themselves are sincere in their belief. They're just deceived, but they're sincere in their belief. But their foolishness and the foolishness of the Galatian saints who would follow after them is seen in in thinking that by including Moses with Christ, they are pleasing God. Because, in fact, all it will result in is provoking the wrath of God against them. But this is what the devil wants. Right, Knowing that it is entrusting the law that one is in danger of losing all of the benefits of your redemption. And that's what he wants them to do. This is why, again, Paul uses that word foolish then in verse 3. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? With this, we're going to look at our first point then this morning, which we'll call a spirit or flesh. Spirit or flesh. Now here, obviously what Paul's doing is he's contrasting right, the spirit and the flesh. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does he mean by spirit here? I submit to what he's talking about is, is really the gospel ministry and everything that it encompasses. right? Because it's through the gospel ministry that one receives the spirit. And even if you look at verse 2, Right, remember he questions them and he asks them, how did you receive the Spirit? By the works of the law or the hearing of faith. And now, and now having begun by the Spirit, right, having begun by the gospel ministry by which you received the Spirit, right, that's what he's talking about here. Uh, we see this in other places. In Second Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Paul says that, that God made him a minister of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Right? In that same passage, Paul calls the ministry of the gospel the ministry of the Spirit. Right, And so, when he, having begun by the Spirit, he's saying, having begun by the gospel ministry. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, having begun the Christian life through believing the gospel and receiving Christ for everything you need, and upon believing Christ, receiving the Spirit who applies redemption to you, One aspect of that, justification by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. Are you now forsaking that for other means? Are you now forsaking that for for carnal means? Are you forsaking that now and seeking to perfect yourself by the flesh? Which in this text would be primarily the ceremonial law. So again, we have what that contrast between law and gospel. The gospel ministry and the ministry of Moses. That's what's being... Uh, contrasted here. Now, we have to ask the question, though, why, why would He call the ceremonial law the works of the flesh when these were things that God Himself commanded His people to do at one time? Right? Why would they now be considered works of flesh that we ought not to do? Well, because when Christ, who was the substance of what those figures under the ceremonial law signified, appeared... He abolished them, being the fulfillment of them all. Right? The gospel frees people from walking under types and shadows because Christ has come. The reality is here. The institutions that God had commanded the Israelites to observe got all their value from their relation to Christ. Right? He brought beauty to the ceremonies and the rites that Israel observed, but now that He has come, they are unnecessary. Right? All that value now is lost for, for the thing they signified is now here. Right? We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that in the, in the institution of the New Covenant, the Old Covenant has passed away. And with it, all of those Old Testament observances as well. The whole Mosaic system crumbled and, f- and fell. Right? There is no spiritual benefit to be had in looking to Moses for all the spiritual benefit we need is to be found in Christ. This is why Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We need to understand that the whole Mosaic system was a shadow of heavenly things, but it wasn't them. It was a shadow of heavenly things, but it wasn't them. The tabernacle was designed to do what? Right To separate the unholiness of of the Israelites from coming into contact with with the holiness of God. And how was that divided? Well, by a veil. And that veil was to demonstrate what? The utter inaccessibility to God that they had because of their sin. But now the unveiled face of Christ has been seen. And so no longer is that veil needed, but we... Now we, we come to God through Christ. Right? We can approach Him now through Christ. Right? The fulfillment of the law that was required by the Mosaic system has been accomplished already by Christ. The sacrifices for sin that the people had to offer year after year have found their consummation in the final, once and for all, sacrifice which Christ committed and by who now He cleanses the consciences of, of all people before God. And so, What Paul is asking them is is this. Are you trying to perfect through the works of the law now what you have received by faith in Christ already? That's what he's saying. Are you seeking to perfect by the works of the law what you have already received in Christ? Because to to say you are is to say that when you received the Holy Spirit that you did not receive all that was necessary for salvation. That's what it's to say. To try to, to, to try to make perfect through the works of the law or the ceremonial law is to deny that Christ is an ample Savior. Right? That's what it's to do. No works of the flesh, no law-keeping will make any one of us right, more perfect than Christ has already made His own. Right? This is why it was utter foolishness in what they were doing. Right? When Paul first preached the Gospel to them, right, they, they looked to Christ alone. And they look to be justified alone by His righteousness which comes through faith. But now what do we see going on? A total 180 is taking place. Right? And now what they are trying to do is make the justifying righteousness of Christ totally perfect through their own works, which is something that cannot be done. Right? What they were doing was, was confusing justification. Right? They were, they were believing as if justification was was two-staged. Right? One part was God's. And now one part is theirs through the observance of the law. But this is what we all need to understand. There is, there is no not-yet aspect of justification that awaits any of us. Hear me again. There is no not-yet aspect of justification that awaits any of us. Right? Christ is the sole basis of our justification. His work, His life, His death, His resurrection... What He did. Not what you and I do. Even those Spirit-led works that you and I do have no basis with our legal standing before God. Not now or in the future. This is why Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there are no degrees in your justification. Right? There is no higher degree of justification. Right? Justification is an act of God, once, where He declares the sinner righteous before God. But I want us to see this. In their abandoning the gospel to believe this false doctrine, I want us to see how easily it is for us to do the very same thing they did. Right? This is why we have to be so careful, right? To, to, to never think that the Christian life and all the benefits derived from it come from anything else but the grace of God through faith alone in Christ. Okay. We need to understand that it's not that you make it into the faith by Christ's work and that you stay in the faith by your own. Right? That's, that's not the case, brothers and sisters. And we know that, but the question is, do we live like that? Right. Do we live like that? I mean, how many of us live in such a way that we, def- we deny the efficacy of Christ's work because we try to substitute our own in its place? Right. How many of us are, are puffed up and proud by what we do, thinking that in some way it gains us some, something in our relationship with God? It's easy for us, so easy for us, brothers and sisters, to to turn away from faith in Christ and to place faith in ourselves. But let us see that that is a denial of the Gospel. It's a denial of the Gospel. And that's what the Galatians are doing. But also see this, that Paul hasn't given up on them, has he? He has not given up on them. He's not willing to throw in the towel on the Galatians. Why? Well, Because he knows the power of God in salvation. He knows the the Spirit's work in the hearts of sinners. He knows that He who began a good work in them will bring it to its completion. That's why we see Paul says this in verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it be in vain? Here's our second point this morning. That we'll call a call to consider their experience. A call to consider their experience. Now, verse 4 can really have two different meanings. And I think one's better than the other, but both of them can be true. Whichever way you render it, it's, it's saying something true and biblical still. Okay, But first, what Paul could be saying is this. Look at all that you've gone through thus far in your Christian life. See... All the affliction that you have suffered for the gospel, right, and for Christ's name's sake. And this would be true, wouldn't it be? Right, that as Christians we are called to suffer. Right? The Christian life in fact is a life of suffering. And so that would be a very a fair rendering of, of, of that here. I mean even first Peter chapter one verse twenty one, Peter says, For to you for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Right? And so he, he, here, if we render it this way, then we would read it exactly as the words say. Right? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So he's, he's asking them, right, did you suffer all these things for the sake of the gospel for nothing? Right? Did you suffer for nothing? Now, in fact, though, to the disdain of many people um, who would call themselves Christians, we need to also see, though, that that then in their example, if it, if it be suffering, he's talking about uh, that that suffering is is for our good, it's for our benefit. That's why God has ordained it. Now, many people don't like that, but that is the truth, right? The Christian calling is one of self denial, right? It's one of of taking up our cross, following Christ, and it's in those. Afflictions, it's in those trials, it's in those tribulations that we are being refined by fire. Right? It's, it's in those moments that, that the genuineness of your faith is being tested to the praise and glory of God's name, which is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6. This is why Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount says what? Blessed is he who suffers for righteousness' sake. Okay? Now, how does though Paul describe their suffering? Look down at the text. He says, Have you suffered so many things in vain? There were many things they suffered. Today we suffer so little for Christ, don't we? And in fact, we we would prefer to suffer less. We prefer to suffer nothing at all if we could. Because we are a a gimme people, aren't we? Gimme, gimme, gimme. But we are unwilling to give Anything. Right, to our Lord. But what does David say in Psalm 34 verse 19? He declares, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Right, we need to see, brothers and sisters, every day comes with new crosses. The question is, are you looking for them? Every day new crosses are presented to you. Are you looking for them? Are you looking to to pick them up and bear them? Or do you look to escape and avoid them? Not wanting to endure anything for Christ. Now, Paul says, if they be in vain, because he isn't convinced that they're going to go on sinning in this way. And so here we see the charity that we need to be showing our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even those who are, who are sinning. But sadly, isn't it a, a charity that lacks in the church? It's a charity that Paul shows it lacks in the church. We are so quick to write someone off, right, in, because of their sin, right, to, to cast them aside because they have been deceived maybe by some, by some new wind of doctrine. Instead of what we ought to be doing is hitting our knees and praying for that person, asking God that that He would bring them to repentance, and and, and ourselves encouraging them, right, through the faith, through presenting to them that that true doctrine. Right When they sin, brothers and sisters, we should not presume that they are not believers. But we should trust that if they are the Lord's, He will bring them to repentance. Right? That in doing so, He will demonstrate the irrevocability of His promises to His people who belong to His covenant. Right? Today, it would be sad, but surely the, the church would have casted off David in his sin and counted him no, no believer at all. We would have casted off Peter in his, in his sin and counted him no believer at all. The only reason why we don't is because we know how the story ends. So don't be so quick to, to write everybody off just because of sin, especially because you know you wouldn't want that to happen to you when you sin against the Lord yourself. So see that although He rebukes them, and sin must be rebuked. We're not saying that. right? Sin must be rebuked. But He does so with balance. right? He rebukes them with balance. Yet, wouldn't it be true that all would be in vain? Right? That their suffering would be in vain if in fact they don't repent. And they deny Christ and the cross and lay hold to, to Moses. Right? If that's the case, then, then, then it's true. What good has their suffering done? It hasn't brought them any closer to the Lord. It hasn't made them more dependent on Him. It hasn't conformed them into the image of His Son. Right? It hasn't done any of those things. It's been suffering that has been a suffering of no value. But ultimately it's going to end with what? An eternal suffering. right? Because they have not come to repentance over that sin. But now let's look at the other way that this verse could be rendered, which I think is probably the more accurate way and, and better fits with the context of the passage. Now, initially you wouldn't know this. right? You'd have to, to look at the words to know the meaning of the word. And so... Uh, that word suffer here also can mean experience. And so if, if many of you, if you look down probably at the footnotes in your in your Bible, it will say can also mean experience. Right? So although suffered works and can be true as we've just seen, to interpret it as speaking of what they experienced when they received the Holy Spirit. I think it makes better sense with the overall argument that Paul's making because at this juncture, are they suffering for Christ? No, they've given up suffering for Christ, haven't they? In order that they might give in to the, to the Judaizers. And remember, Paul's argument is meant to cause them to remember how they received all of the benefits of Christ. Was it through the works of the law or was it through faith? And so he's saying here, it's through faith that you experience all of the glorious privileges of the Gospel. That's what he's saying. It's through faith that you experience grace and forgiveness and peace and joy and the indwelling work of the Spirit, unless it was in vain, unless it wasn't true, unless it wasn't the case. But Paul obviously is hoping that when they read this, that they're going to answer, no, it wasn't in vain. That they're going to repent of their sin that they're going to forsake the doctrine of the Judaizers and they're going to hold fast to the true gospel and the true doctrine of justification by faith alone. So he wants them to acknowledge that it is by grace and through faith in Christ, which is the reason that they have experienced all of these great privileges, not through the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Now, as Christians... I think oftentimes we undervalue experience. I think many times, in fact, we maybe look upon people who speak of it and laugh, or we we frown upon those who would talk about experience. But we shouldn't. Experience matters. Right? Your Christian experience matters. The Christian life is not just a life about knowledge, but it's a life of experience as well. This is the very thing that Paul says to the saints. It's what they experienced that he is calling them now to remember. Remember what you experienced, or was it all in vain? Because when they remember what they experienced, to them it will be a thundering reminder of God's power in their salvation. Just to know the right things without experiencing them doesn't conjure up much assurance of faith in us, does it? Right. Full assurance comes through not only trusting the promises of God, but experiencing the glories of your redemption. Right. Experience, brothers and sisters, is a part of the Christian life. This is, in fact, believe it or not, what we confess, right, in the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. In chapter 18, verse two, or excuse me, chapter 18, paragraph two, it reads, "In speaking of the assurance of believers." that it is founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the Gospel. Right? So it's founded upon Christ, but also upon the inward evidence of, grace, of those graces of the Spirit unto which the promises are made. Your experience of the inward promises and on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are children of God. And so we see that not only do we derive assurance from laying hold to the promises, trusting in them, but also we derive assurance from the, the inward graces that we experience in our own lives. Right? So experience matters, but as the Confession states, the only spiritual experience that matters or that ought to be trusted is one that accords with the Scripture. So that is not feelings that guide experience, but the Scripture that guides experience. And so we have to ask the question, brothers and sisters, have you experienced the inward graces of the Holy Spirit in your life that God has promised you through the Gospel? Think back in your life. You ought to be able to answer that question. Do you have an ever-diminishing love of sin? And does it continue to diminish that love of sin more and more and more? Right? That's a work of the, of the Spirit in the hearts of His people. Right? Do you have peace with God and respect to your right standing before God because of what Christ has done? Right? That peace is a, is a work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Do you have an ever-increasing desire to serve God and worship God at His footstool? according to the manner in which He has prescribed. That is a work of the Spirit inside of you. that testifies that God lives in me. These are all things that Christians ought to experience. These are all experiences every single one of us ought to seek to have. Those that accord with the Scriptures. We all ought to desire a much more fuller apprehension of the graces of God in us Right? Because in the fuller apprehension of those graces in us, right, it is, a, it is a, a, a trustworthy reminder that God dwells in us. And we ought to want that. This is what Paul believed the saints in Galatia experienced. And he wants them to remember how they experienced it. This is why he goes on to say in verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? I think, I think this buffers my point. What is he calling them in verse 5 to remember as well? Their experience. right? He's calling them, does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, right? the miracles that they experienced, do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Right? It was God who gave them the spirit of the adoption, not the law. And it was God who confirmed that doctrine through the extraordinary gifts that were given to these people. In Iconium, in Acts chapter 14, verse 3, in Iconium is one of the churches that is being written to in this letter. This is what we're told. That they remain there, that's the apostles, for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Paul is calling them to recall the experience that they had When he preached the word there, how they were given the extraordinary gifts to use, and he's calling them to remember that, so he might pierce their heart, because now they have turned their back on the God who has given them those things. Right, their sin in abandoning God after all He has done is being shown to them. And brothers and sisters, these people were people under apostolic teaching. They were taught by the apostles. Men who walked and talked and were taught by Christ Himself, and yet that wasn't enough to keep them from forsaking the Gospel. How much more susceptible do you think you and I are to being torn away by false teachers and to be deceived by false doctrine? This is why it's so important, brothers and sisters, to to guard our hearts. Right to be careful to to guard our hearts to safeguard them to, to bring them under submission to God's word right to bring captive our every thought to God's word. But we also safeguard our hearts by recollecting on the past. This is why we should never stop reminding ourselves of what God has already done. Right, reminding of what He has done for us. Right, it, this is why it also does good to your heart to study the lives of saints' past. Because in reading about their life and seeing what God did in them, it's a reminder of what God has done in you. And it might help to correct our bad doctrine sometimes that we take to ourselves as we look and we study the past. This is exactly what Paul does to, to punctuate his argument. Right, He turns to Abraham now to, to end the debate. This is what we see in verse 6. He says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We'll close with this here, our third point, which we'll call a validating example. A validating example. Here Paul, what he's doing is kind of placing a cherry on top of his argument. right? Proving his point through the example of Abraham. Right? What are the Judaizers trying to do? They're trying to get the saints in Galatia to look back to Genesis 17 and the covenant of circumcision made there. So what does is, what is Paul swoop through and do? He says, I'll, I'll do you one better. Let's go back even further. Right, let, me, let me take you to Genesis 15 and let's read about what happened there. And what you will see is that Abraham was reckoned righteous before God prior to his circumcision. And if that be true, then such is the same with every single person who is a child of Abraham. That's the point he's making. And remember what happened in in Genesis uh, 15. We read this uh, last week, if you were here here in the evening, so it should be fresh in your mind. But if you remember, at the end of of chapter 14, Paul conquers pagan kings. And he frees Lot and his possessions and many others. And as he is now walking away, the Lord comes to Abram. And he says, Abraham, do not fear. I am your shield. I am your exceedingly great reward. And then he begins to, to promise Abrams many things. One of the things he promises Abram is an heir. And in addition to the heir, he tells him, well, look out at the stars of the sky, so shall your descendants be. And here we're told that Abraham believes God and it was counted to him and he was counted as righteous before the Lord. So what's Paul trying to, to show them? Right, well, he's saying, "How was Abraham reckoned righteous by God? Was it the law? Was it by the works of the flesh? Was it through circumcision? And the answer is no. God through faith reckoned Abraham righteous? Well, you ask, well, how was God able to do that if Christ yet had not yet come, if the sacrifice has not yet been offered? Well God knowing that Christ as surety would be crucified accepted the satisfaction of of Christ and the satisfaction that he would make as payment for Abraham already. Right? It's not as if God the Father was unsure if his son was going to offer the sacrifice. Right? And so he accepts the payment as already complete and applies it to Abraham. But faith was the instrument to receive that, not his works. It was faith but it also was not faith in just anything. It was faith in Christ. It was faith in Christ. You say, well, where's Christ in any of this? Well, Abraham believed the promise of the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. right? Abraham believed then that from his heir and from his descendants, that seed of the woman would come to be savior. That's what he believed. This is why Jesus can say in John chapter 8, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it and was glad. Abraham desired to see the Messiah. And Jesus says, in fact, he did. How? With the eyes of faith. Even back then in Genesis 15. Right, He saw Him in the promise of the Messiah and received the righteousness of Christ that only comes through faith in Christ. And this is a lesson every single one of us here must continue to learn because our flesh is oftentimes tempted to seek favor with God through our own efforts. But we must see that we merit nothing in this Christian life. You receive righteousness not through your efforts but simply by receiving Christ. And that goes for the whole Christian life. Right? We aren't justified and then we go about living the Christian life in some other way or in some other manner. You know, your justification follows you throughout the entirety of your Christian life. It's not that I'm now justified and now I move on to step two. Never at any point in the Christian life do you stand before God on the basis of anything else but the righteousness of Christ. That's it. We live the entire Christian life as justified people. Never does your justified status switch from Jesus to you. And we all ought to thank God and rejoice. Because the moment it switched from Jesus to us, we would have lost it. Abraham is a prime example of that, isn't he? Think back to Genesis 15. He believed the promise, was reckoned righteous, he was justified. What happens in Genesis 16? He disbelieves the promise. He tries to create his own heir by laying with Hagar, Sarah's servant. But does he now become unjustified because of it? No, he doesn't. He doesn't because his standing before God was never based on the works of the flesh. It was always based on the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And because of that righteousness, he had forgiveness of sin already. And the same is true for everyone here today. Brothers and sisters, you are not justified today. And because of your sin, tomorrow will become unjustified. Right? Let us thank God for that. Right? In these verses, Paul tears down any notion that there is anything left for us to perfect by our works. Because what Jesus did is now complete. Right, The beginning, the middle and the end of the Christian life is now lived by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as those justified by His righteousness and in no other way. Why? So that God alone receives all the glory. Your imperfect, good works have no basis in your standing ever before God. But this is why Christ has come to save you. Because He knew that no matter how much effort we put into our works, we could never be justified because of them. Why? Because we are all born under the curse. And even as believers now, even as those who are saved, our works are still imperfect. They still, they still are tainted with the, with the sinful effects of the fall. But this is why, brothers and sisters, and out of a spirit of, of gratitude, it ought to fill us as Christ has revealed inexpressible gladness inside of us as we as we come to recognize our salvation, it should now cause us to desire to obey His every word, shouldn't it? And to follow His every command as those not led by ourselves, but led by the grace of God. And we do it, though, not because we think we will merit anything by it, but because now as believers, our heart overflows every day more and more with love for God as we gather each week and learn more and more about all of the miraculous, amazing, and glorious things that God has done for you and I. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word this day. We are so grateful, Lord, that that our standing before God has nothing to do with ourselves has nothing to do with our own works or our own, or, or our own merits, but rather it is solely based on the merits of Christ. And so we are so thankful for that. Uh, Lord, we pray that You would help us as uh, frail sinners ourselves to to recognize if there is any aspect in our life in which we are, are holding on to our own self-righteousness or, or that we are looking away from Christ into to ourselves. We pray, Lord, that that you would show that to us and that you would bring us to repentance immediately for that. And that, Lord, we would uh, never again, right, look away for Christ, uh, look away from Christ to anything else for our righteousness, recognizing that uh, the only way that we can ever stand right before God is through faith in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, continue to remind us of that each day. Uh, Lord, that you would also, though, remind us of what we have been called to now as those justified by God. And that is people who suffer for Christ's sake. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us courage and and boldness and strength to to look for those daily crosses in our lives and to not run away from them or avoid them, but rather to, to take them up and to follow after the manner in which Christ has left for us. Also, though, not so that we might gain anything by it, but rather, Lord, that, that uh, You have promised by Your grace to conform us to the image of Your Son through it. And that is what we hope for. And so, Lord, we just pray that today Your Word has, has worked in the hearts of the saints, that You would sanctify us through it, and that You would even bring to saving faith those who have not yet come to faith. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.